So what we want to do today is provide a tool and a resource for patients um, to be able to go back, review and look. And, and then even if you're just curious about having a procedure, we want to get those questions uh, answered and addressed. So hormonally, we want to make sure that we're not you know, operating on rock as far as your ability to respond. What vitamins should I take before I get there, right? What we recommend to patients pre-op and post-op, especially with chronic muscle pain, back pain, muscle fatigue, heart failure. The question we got even this week is, is is the bone marrow draw going to hurt? You know, because in the movies, on TV, every time you heard bone marrow, they're going to take your bone marrow, Dr. McKenna. The downside of most of Western medicine's approaches to the problem is dramatic compared to the downside of ours. Is it uncommon for people to experience a little bit of inflammatory relief and then a little bit of backlog before you start the healing? For sure. Welcome to the Zero Downside Podcast with Dr. Wade McKenna, sponsored by MoabTexas.com. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Zero Downside. Today we're going to be discussing the common questions we get from patients when they book their procedure and they have many questions prior to it on how to prepare themselves, how to optimize their body for the procedure, and then every question in post-op as well. So everything from when can I exercise, what are my restrictions, to everything after. So I'm going to let Mike lead us off here and get us started with Dr. McKenna. Absolutely. Thank you, Hannah. And we are so glad to be back with you all. Uh, and we always appreciate your viewership and your support. Uh, today is a special day because it's a day where we get to talk about a major decision, which is having a procedure specifically involving what we do, what you do best. And so with that comes a lot of questions. And these questions can be asked with Hannah, oftentimes via email or phone before case, Ashley fields a massive amount of questions and she does a remarkable job. And then we even have patients as they're being put under start to ask us questions and we say, okay, you're not gonna remember a whole lot at this point, but let's get these addressed. So what we wanna do today is provide a tool and a resource for <clears> patients um, to be able to go back, review and look. And, and then even if you're just curious about having a procedure, we wanna get those questions uh, answered and addressed. So thank you for submitting them first off and and with that, I will kick it off to uh, Dr. Wade McKenna. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we spend so much time in the actual contact with the patient that, that it feels like the episode is really just to get something permanent down as the answer because we've answered these questions usually for people a good... I know that, that moving the chair probably just screwed everything up for you, right? Um, <laughs> but we, by the time that we get to that point, these patients have had, we, like I've answered the question, but it's just a lot, mm -hmm. right? So it's not that the, they, they, it's the first time they think of it. It's that they've had it answered during the application process, but there's so much to process because they're worried about getting here and how to get it done and, and, and talking through the process. And then at the time of our visit, I'm going over films. Um, where, and they're, they're trying to get to know me and they're getting to, used to being in the clinic at the time of their call with Dr. Phillips, they're overwhelmed with some of the information. So, and then the day of the procedure I spent, you know, we go through everything and we're talking to make sure, oh, do you have any other questions to ask? So, so these questions are the same questions that we work really hard to answer at multiple points in your visit. What I'm hoping this episode becomes is the, hey, <laughs> down the, like and subscribe. And on this episode, hopefully, we've kind of covered the generalities because the generalities, look, everyone is different, every procedure is unique-ish, right? Yeah. I mean, after 20,000 bone marrow draws, there may be some individual differences, but for the most part, whether you're having an injection or a surgical procedure with an injection or some combination thereof, our pre-op plan that we go over with you is, you know, when people say after surgery, well, what happened? Exactly what we said was going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the room, when we talked about the scope and we talked about the MRI and we showed you everything that was wrong, that's what was done, right? We addressed all that. And we, we left everything cleaner than it was. 
We smooth up all the rough surfaces. We shrink down all the areas of tear. I get rid of all the inflammatory tissue and I put cells in your knee. At the time of arthroscopy, there are some unique individual differences. There are some people that have, you know, had a giant cyst within the meniscal area. You never want to be the interesting case, <laughs> um, yeah. right? I mean, we have plenty of interesting cases. We had a guy last week. I cleaned a ton of gouty crystals out of his knee. I, I mean, to the point where it looked like someone had taken powder and baked it and threw it in this guy's knee. And there's just giant pieces of calcium pyrophosphate, all this crystalline deposition that were taken out. That's a little different than the usual knee scope. Yeah. But for the most part, we've worked hard to answer these questions. So I think there's, this is hopefully the opportunity to get something hard down that, that, that should be, we're going to work really, really hard to make this as applicable to everybody as we can, allowing for the individual differences associated with your procedure and kind of what we did. How about that? I We're gonna, love it. There's yeah. really hard to talk about stem cells in general. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard to talk about. But for the most part, what we do, we do a lot of. And there shouldn't be a lot of outliers at this point of something we've never never seen before, right? Now, mm -hmm. I will tell you, and surgeons and doctors in general have a, have a problem with it. I will tell you that as a medical student on my ENT rotation, I bet I heard the ENT surgeon tell 50 patients. Those are the biggest tonsils I've ever seen. That was the worst I'd ever done. Do I think that that, that every one of those patients over the 50 that I did with him was worse than the one before? No. Is he trying to let the patient know he really cares about him and that this is really individual and unique? Sure. But, but we still have patients come by. Oh my doctor, the doctor that did my shoulder said it was the worst rotator cuff he'd ever seen. That's the fifth time we heard that today. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so for us in general, if you've already had a surgery and it failed, it's bad because you had something done. It destroyed the tissue bed. We're looking at, there's not a lot of vascular spine. We're having to undo a lot of that. Right. So know that there are some generalities that we're going to overcome, but I, I get it. Like, I know how many times you've been told this is so different than anything else we had seen. Know that it might not be different than anything we've seen. Yeah. Right. I had 26 years of private practice and taking care of, for the most part, probably, I would say, easy half of the patients that we take to the private OR um, on the cell side, easy half, and probably more than that, right? Mm -hmm. I've already had traditional procedures over a period of years that made them worse or didn't work at all or at most bought them a little bit of time and now it's back worse later right and they just don't want to have to do the same thing again if there's another option mm -hmm. so it's not it's not like we're 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 usually we don't get the opportunity to be kind of first to the table very often we're kind of bat and clean up a lot right mm -hmm. so some of these questions we're going to work really hard, but, but we're hoping to get some generalities out there for you. But know that we're still going to keep answering them for you. But I'm hoping that we can get something solid on tape for you that, that, that you can refer to anytime you have a question. Well, let's start off with the pre-procedure question that I always get asked. And that's if they usually are booking a few months out. I'll usually get an email that's like, hey, watched the podcast like one recently and it intrigued a question. What can I do nutritionally with IVs or with supplements to optimize my body for the procedure I have coming up? And that's, that's, you know, again, that's, that's, that's one of those individual questions sometimes mm. because, you know, we, and I think I've said this one time before, but one of my favorite questions to ask medical students or, or residents when someone comes in and they start asking about the nutritional therapy we do, because we do a lot of IV nutritional therapy in the clinic, um, is, well, what's the most important vitamin for someone to take? And, and I think I've had two students ever get it right, and it's the one the patient's deficient in is the answer, right? And you don't know that for everybody until you look at some labs, see what their symptoms are, see what their goals are, right? So for us, there are some general guidelines. Um, I, I think that Hormonally, we want to make sure that we're not 
you know, operating on rock as far as your ability to respond. Mm -hmm. So if you're a guy and we're doing four levels in your back and your testosterone is 190, we're going to have some challenges. Um, if we can get your testosterone to actually be kicking in and helping you, mm -hmm. then it makes everything else we do work better, right? We, we want you, we want the car tuned up before you paint it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so with hormone levels are crucial. Thyroid function is crucial. Um, so knowing kind of where your thyroid function is with a real thyroid panel, not just a, you know, free T4 measurement or something the, I, I think that, uh, with women, you get some osteoporotic thoracic patient. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's not uncommon for them to have a testosterone of like less than measurable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nine. We, I like, you know, a lot of labs won't even <clears throat> put anything out there less than 10. It just says less than measurable. But, mm -hmm. but for us, and we've said this before, but I think it's key. Testosterone is every bit as important for women as men, just in much lower levels. So one of those things you can do, if you've never thought about hormone replacement therapy, but you're having a lot of physiologic challenges and pain and difficulty healing and problems overcoming some things, getting you hormonally fit for your procedure can mean a ton in your recovery. Mm -hmm. Can we, can we touch on that briefly? Cause I, I think a lot of people associate testosterone with strength, right? And, and muscle mass, but it, it's so much more. You've talked a million times that I've been in the room where you talk to a patient about recovery and, and how important the healing process is involving recovery for patients. So can you touch there's on a, that just a little a, bit? Yeah. There's a lot of hormonal feedback loops, right? And again, we, you know, we, we talk about peptides, mm -hmm. talk about amino acids. Amino acids are the building block of a peptide. Peptides are the building block of proteins. Proteins are the building blocks for hormones and enzymes. So hormones are the feedback that provides nutritional health pretty much to everywhere and kind of is the regulatory system that is going to be, it's one of the things that are altered the most with big amounts of cells, right? Is mm -hmm. your inflammatory load, your, your immune system, again, cells can only do three things. Mm -hmm. One is they provide nutritional support, peptides and proteins, exosomes for regenerative uses. They provide immune function because they modulate your immune response. And, and, and then for the most part, it's, it's your immune response, your regenerative health is going back to what those cells secrete. They secrete over 7,000 peptides and proteins, right? Mm -hmm. And so hormones being one of the keys, that's kind of the upregulatory status to kind of give the cells less to do so they can focus on what's really wrong. So I think hormone therapy is crucial in the recovery of getting rid of lactic acid, recovering for strength, sleeping, sexual wellness, muscle, muscle atrophy, healing after a procedure. Um, we can augment that with a lot of end stage peptide therapy. Um, I think nutritional support, I'll get back to your question because I know that what Hannah wants is because the questions she gets are more specific. What vitamins should I take before I get there? Right. I, I don't know that there's one for everybody. I know that we have to be really careful before we're doing a spine procedure, neck, some of what we do, because a lot of nutrients or, or vitamin supplements are, are kind of have a little bit of a blood thinner effect. Mm -hmm. So if someone's on a bunch of ginkgo biloba, if someone's on a lot of uh, alpha memory stuff, because I'm a huge fan of, of a lot of neurotropics, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of nootropics are um, have a little bit of a blood thinning effect. High dose vitamin C has a little bit of a blood thinning mm -hmm. effect. Vitamin E has a little mm -hmm. bit of a blood thinning effect. So even though we want you on a lot of D3, we want you on vitamin C, we mm -hmm. want your immune system kicking in on all, all mm -hmm. cylinders. Before your procedure, three to five days before your procedure, we want you to stop most of that mm -hmm. because we don't want a lot of, of bleeding it, where we're putting a needle. Mm. Mm -hmm. So there should yeah. really be something like three weeks prior to their booked procedure. Yeah, that they should for, be trying for, to do for a couple of weeks before yeah. we want you, like, let's get you up, right? Mm -hmm. Let's start taking vitamin C. You can mm -hmm. take, you know, the average human can take five to seven grams of vitamin C a day without getting diarrhea. That is not just giving you expensive urine, regardless of what your regular doctor <laughs> may tell you. Um, it's, it's helping build your liver back up mm -hmm. so you're not sore butic. 
humans cannot synthesize your own absorbate in our liver. We're one of only three mammals on the planet. Every other mammal, so horses, goats, sheep, they don't get scurvy coming across the Atlantic and never have. Only humans, right? So humans, fruit bats, and guinea pigs, and great apes. <laughs> We're the only one. Because why do fruit bats, guinea pigs, and great apes not be able to synthesize absorbate in the liver? Because they have diets that are really high in food that contains a lot of absorbate, right? Absorbate is vitamin C. Humans, probably at some point, were able to synthesize absorbate in our liver. Over the development of fermented beverages and other toxins that weren't part of our initial creation, we have, our liver has had to figure out some multitasking. And because absorbate was supposed to be a little easier to get in your diet, our liver took the pathway of we're going to detoxify alcohols. We're going to do a lot of that work because that's the best bang for this pe person's buck mm -hmm. as far as what does the best function that we can do for the human being and do it better. That is the liver detoxification of everything. So, but when you hit surgical stresses, even travel, even if it's good stress, it burns down your, your absorbate levels. So you're a little sorbutic, meaning you don't have enough vitamin C in your diet to handle the stress. It, it affects healing after su traditional surgery for sure. Um, that's been proven a ton. There was a great paper published on pediatric ICU stays. And everyone randomized prospective, half the patients admitted got 10 grams, which is not a ton, but it is high dose, 10 grams of IV vitamin C upon admission to pediatric ICU. Half the patients didn't. In the patients that did, regardless of diagnosis, it lowered their hospitalization and morbidity because it built their immune system up and that made the patients less sorbutic. So vitamin C, vitamin D3. I think because most of the patients we see are musculoskeletal patients, everyone's a little magnesium challenged. And, and I think that magnesium is not a blood thinner. Um, and so certainly for us, the problem is getting enough elemental magnesium to matter is very difficult. And, and you can't just say, you can't just enter magnesium on Amazon and get the right one mm -hmm. because magnesium citrate is a great way to move your bowels. It's not a great way to get a lot of magnesium absorbed, <laughs> absorbed into your system, right? Um, magnesium glycinate, magnesium gluconate, a little bit harder to get, but much better absorbed magnesium oxide and and citrate, though, are the two most common forms you're gonna, of supplements. Those aren't going to help your magnesium levels. What we recommend to patients pre-op and post-op, especially with chronic muscle pain, back pain, muscle fatigue, heart failure, is um, magnesium L-theonate because it's, there's a great paste on the market. It's really easily absorbed. It has a lot of elemental magnesium. And it is amazing how much magnesium can change someone's symptoms. If you go to a health food store, anything homeopathic that, and, and, and I don't think homeopathic medicines are bad, the homeopathic pharmacopoeia is the basis for a lot of, a, a lot of medicines out there. Mm -hmm. But if, you, if you're in the aisle for leg pain or nighttime leg pain, if there's anything called smooth or relax or nighttime calm, it's magnesium, right? So that's the active ingredient. For them to, for them to claim activity, in the homeopath, it has to ha go back to the homeopathic pharmacopoeia. And in the homeopathic pharmacopoeia, magnesium is approved for nighttime leg cramps. And mm. so if you add that to it, you can make that claim. That's the purpose of that, right? So if it's in there as a, if it's in there as a therapeutic use, you can make the claim when you put a label on a bottle. That's how the FDA does that. So magnesium is crucial. Now, just as a quick aside, because I think magnesium is really, really difficult to get. Everyone's deficient in it. There's not, you're not going to over supplement. Your body knows how to regulate your magnesium levels. It's just starving for it. Um, the reason for Epsom salt, like when your grandma made you set, when you would have leg cramp, when you had growing pains or when you would not feel like Epsom salt is magnesium, right? So there's a, there's a way more bougie products out there with magnesium soap flakes. Mm -hmm. You can get it like Central Market that if you bathe in those, you're going to sleep better. Your muscles cramp less. You recover better from a workout. 
because it absorbs transcutaneously, right? So you can absorb magnesium transcutaneously. The magnesium in Epsom salts won't make your bowels run if you absorb it transcutaneously. It would make it run if you took it orally. So I think that magnesium, vitamin C, vitamin D3, um, hormone function, thyroid, um, those are the, that's the kind of the low hanging fruit as far as bare minimum of what can you do to make these cells work better. Um, there is a few supplements out there that, that have a valid claim of elevating the amount of circulating stem cells associated with that when you take it. But because we're going to harvest them and concentrate them and put them where they go for a bone marrow patient, I think it could be critical. But I think for the most part, do, do we have any data that shows those supplements augment what's in your bone marrow? No, right? It may alter, it may alter what's secreted out. I think uh, there's great literature on cold therapy. There's great literature on cryo to show that that sense of well-being you get afterwards is associated because your body seems to kick out a, in peripheral circulating stimulation, a little bit more cells associated with that. Mm. So I think that it, 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 can it help in your recovery? Yes. So if the question is, we'll hit some of these along the way, is cryo going to hurt me? No. Do you believe in cryo? Yes. Do you think that it helps me? Yes. And there's great data to show that even with the, it, especially with dopamine a, a, a activity, my kid and I started doing cold plunges in the, in the, in the pool because we go to the hot tub a lot. And now she has this thing that she loves to, because she taunts me with it because she's better at it than I am. I'm just <laughs> jumping in the pool and, and she will stay there. You know, the literature says like 11 minutes a week, maybe kind of crucial and at least three minutes at a time. But the dopamine surges that you get from all of the addictive stuff that people are attached to. Uh, and there's a lot of literature out there on all the vices that people have, whether it's gambling or porn or um, exercise, the good ones, um, you know, or alcohol, drug use. What happens is if that's your only, what your dopamine hit, it gets less and less dependable of a dopamine hit with continued activity. So that's what kind of fuels the addiction is you have to do it more and more to get the same hit every time. Cold therapy is the only thing that doesn't do that. You don't get used to cold therapy. You'll still get that same dopamine hit. And I think a lot of that is because you're secreting all those cells into your peripheral circulation. So I think cold therapy, if that question comes up, answer is we love cold therapy, right? I think cryo is a great idea. I think the cold plunge thing is a great data on it. Um, nutritional supplements and support, hormonal and um, thyroid key. This is all pre-op, right? So we, Yo, we've kind of covered the... And, and for post-op and, and recovery, post right? Yeah. But yes. because, because remember, we want you off of anything that can thin your blood for three to five days before mm -hmm. we do your procedure. And I think that's what confuses patients a lot too, is that we actually do these IVs and the supplements in mm -hmm. post-op, like while you're waking up. So it yeah. is an option. A lot of people be like, well, do I have to stay two more days to get it? Like, no, no, no. we can do it immediately following your procedure. Yeah, because if I build you up, especially little things, Glutathione, mm -hmm. right? One of the, one of a crucial peptide in the overall evolution and cleaning out your liver and making you healthier. Glutathione is one of those peptides that's very difficult to, to absorb or get without IV therapy. Yeah. And, and glutathione levels start going down at like 21 years old. And this is the perfect time of year. <laughs> Oh, for <laughs> to sure. To pursue that. Man, yeah. IV, for sure. Like, yes. So when, when you do nutritional therapy, and a lot of people in recovery room are hooked up to, to a yellow bag, right? Because high dose absorbate, and there's only one lab you need to get. Like everyone talks, well, you know, high dose vitamin C can be dangerous. No, it can't, right? If you are, have G6PD. So there's one enzyme you can test for. It's a cheap test. If you don't have G6PD, then you can you you can't have big big doses of absorbate because it can you can cause hemolysis, but G6PD and and, and it's less than one percent of the population mm -hmm. that doesn't have G6PD. You just don't so want I think to catch that, that probably, one percent. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 and I don't think we've ever seen a positive G6PD. Patient yeah, I, I used to run all the labs for you on all the G6PD. I don't think we've PD. ever seen we, someone that didn't. Not one. But why do we continue to do it? Because it's safe and it's less than twenty five dollars, and it lets us know that I can treat you with big doses of absorbate 
and actually rescue you and your liver, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So I think G6PD. Now, do most nutritional IV places make you do G6PD before they give? No, because they're giving five to ten. Because they're giving you five to ten grams and calling a high dose. If you're if you're if if your immune system is taking a big hit and you have some viral illness, COVID, um, there was a ton of literature from all over the world to show that a big dose of absorbate, and we're talking twenty five to fifty grams of absorbate, can almost immediately turn you around. And that's the way with all viral illnesses, right? So if someone's just metabolically just, I'm sick with the flu, man, you, you can be sick with the flu for a week or you can get a big dose of IV therapy and not, we're not making this claim, but obviously if you get a, 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 a big bag of fluid and it's hydrating to you instead of just going through you and we make it hydrating through you by putting the, the, the high dose vitamin C, Myers cocktail, magnesium, glutathione before that we can literally help people turn around and there's great literature to show that with chronic viral illnesses those people respond or acute viral illnesses those people respond very very quickly and and post-op when we can keep people out of sorbutism by providing that nutritional support especially after cells if you're flying in and getting ready to get back on a big airplane around a lot of other people at this time of the year, load up. I would really like you, your immune system kicking on all cylinders before you get on a plane with 400 people uh, or hang out in an airport and, and touch doorknobs and door handles with everyone out there that's coughing and hacking everywhere. So I think that the you know, post-op IV is a big deal in our clinic. I think that people getting that a couple of weeks before they come, a week before they come is a big deal for us. Um, and we, and we can help people find sources for that. Um, I mean, and that's, that's, that's a common, common question. Mm -hmm. I think another one that I I get a lot now, especially with the amount of patients that we've been treating with it is the GLP ones, right? I'm on a GLP one. Do I need to discontinue it? And how soon before surgery? That's another question. There's a lot of of data on the GLP one agonists. Um, primarily terzepatide and semaglutide. Yes, sir. Um, now if you're getting them through us, um, they're usually, they're a compounded version because it's way more affordable for the patient. Um, and it has peroxine phosphate added to it, which is vitamin B6. So there's a lot less nausea. So technically you're actually getting more therapy than just the GLP-1 agonist. What the data on GLP-1 agonist show that if you're having bowel surgery for sure, that you need to, you can, it can slow down your bowels for a week. So you need to be about a week without your GLP-1 agonist because you don't want to be really significantly constipated after a lot of narcotics and going to sleep. So if you know that you have a really slow bowel function, you've been on GLP-1 agonist for six months and you're going to have a big back surgery or a total knee or something where you know, especially anything in your GI tract, you're going to, even if you're just having um, colonoscopies and EGDs, They'll recommend you be off of GLP-1 agonist for at least a week before um, because it does slow down your bowel function sign. Mm-hmm. For, uh, for stem cells in your knee, do I want you missing doses of that? No. Move your dose to Sunday or Friday and have your procedure on a Thursday, and that's usually enough for us. Like, Do I want you missing two weeks so that you can have me inject your back? No. Like that, that's not a thing for us most mm-hmm. of the time. Now, if you're having a total knee, maybe, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, especially depending on your body weight. Now, if you're already had accomplished a lot of your goals, would me at 310 need to have stopped GOP-1 agonist for a couple weeks before total knee? Yes. Would me at 210 need to stop GOP-1 agonist for two weeks before total knee? No, because I'm not as likely to have an issue with that as your body weight drops, as you are when you're obese. Obesity presents unique risks for every surgical procedure that need to be addressed directly with the patient. And so that is one of those, you know, obesity, heart disease, um, for the most part, um, people in bad thyroid dysfunction, people with chronic other hormone changes. There are some diseases that put you in a unique category of pre-op risks 
that may not fall within the answers that people are going to get on this episode. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. Hannah, are there any other pre-op questions that, that we get that we need to touch on? I think that's about it. Hannah has the, so, so I, we literally put it out to all of our staff and the, and the staff, I love that. I don't know who named, who named the group. Oh, it's called the dream team. Yeah. yeah. Who named that? I have no idea who named that. Probably so, Peyton. Okay. Probably so Peyton. The, most yeah. likely Peyton. Yeah. Okay. So our group tax for the clinic is now called the dream team. Mm -hmm. And for the last uh, couple months, maybe. And it makes me really happy to see dream team pop up on my phone. Um, and so the, the text out to the dream team was, Hey, every patient question that you've had to answer multiple times, we want to know, like, let's take care of that today. Right. Mm -hmm. I think the one that is, can be most frustrating is the, you know, pre-op, what can I do, mm -hmm. um, is cold therapy, but let's, let's knock them out. Let's, yeah. what, are, what are the post-op questions we get? I think, yeah, Actually, now it's all after. Yeah. Interoperative. Uh, the, the question we got even this week is, is, is the bone marrow draw going to hurt? You know, because in the movies on TV, every time you heard bone marrow, they're going to take your bone marrow, Dr. McKenna. I worked it really hard right. to make sure I worked that into every episode. I think we've done so far Yes, <laughs> is that, um, we can't put local anesthetic and steroid around the cells. It kills them all. Right. Yeah. So anytime someone says, Oh, I had a stem cell injection. Well, it, and, and look, horrifyingly, there is a surgeon, um, foot and ankle surgeon in Florida that came up here. We taught him and the, uh, most of the people that learned how to do the arterial site, the draw using the, the bone marrow harvest catheter that I designed, um, initially, especially 10 years ago, most of the people that learned how to do that, learned how to do it for me. And so that bone marrow harvest draw, you would see someone get back and they'd, they'd send me a video and say, Hey, I put this on my website and they'd show them using the draw catheter and everything's going great. And they harvest the marrow. And then they're injecting the, the plantar fascia with the cells and using it with a lot of local anesthetic and steroid. And I'll be like, what part of this did you not get? Right? Like we can't now the, the opposite of that isn't true. After I harvest your marrow, I can do a block to the top of the iliac crest. So that block is going to last usually the whole first day. So when I harvest the marrow, that's the place I can put local after I pull the cells out, <laughs> right? Because, because we make a, 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 a we, we've made a hole in the periosteum covering that bone. And when I put a block in it, most people wake up without any pain. And even when the block wears off, for the most part, it's not a very painful procedure. It's right. three to five minutes. And that's certainly not. And I think I made a point when we had Laura on. Uh, because I think Laura, Laura's episode was, I don't know, 12 or something, but she's had probably six bone marrow draws, mm -hmm. right? And she's, she'd never had any pain with them. And for the most part said that all the horrifying stories she got were all wrong. Um, so I think that when, when patients get through the bone marrow draw, the other question you get about bone marrow draw, let's knock those out real quick. How long, how, how long is that hole going to leak for? that's a little bitty hole in a bone that heals really fast. Um, I can't find that same hole if we're coming back within a couple of weeks. Um, we're redrilling it, right? And oh, by the way, how long does it take those cells to come back? I can draw cells from your marrow about every other week and get the same cell count. Over time, it will go down because you don't have as amount of cells as you used to have and the most cells you have aren't as good as they used to be. But your bone marrow is not going to depreciate in a month, right? So if I drew great cells off there in one month, the next month I can draw the same cells up. And now that we have honed the procedure down a lot with the catheter and everything, if I draw cells from one side, if we need more, I can almost always get exactly the same cell count by drawing cells from both sides at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the hole fills in very quickly. It, you can draw it multiple times. The cells recover very quickly. The downside of that harvest with the way we do it is extremely low. Um, almost said it. Yeah, almost said it. We were almost. so close. Yeah, I, 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 I've conditioned myself to not say zero downside. Oh. But, but I do love saying almost zero or it's very low or I will skip all the way around to not say the zero downside. But only because nothing has a zero downside. But again, if you compare this to everything else we do, the downside of most of Western medicine's approaches to the problem is dramatic compared to the downside of ours. 
Yeah. We should change the name to the approaching zero. <laughs> the almost zero downside. The, the, the working towards zero downside. I just don't want someone to ever come out and go, you said there's zero downside. I'm like, no, it's fine. It's my fault. It was I'm a sorry. joke, right? Like it was it was an overreaction because my staff is a bunch of smart alecks. Um, and we were having this meeting about what's called a podcast. And I was like, wow. And they, the zero, I said, man, the zero downside. And they both looked at each other like, and I was like, what? And they're like, yes and i was like no and they're like yeah i said i don't say that and they both are like no you say that there's literally the zero downside there's literally zero that's all i hear every I and, patient room and, that's and the I, sign off man <laughs> i i really because when people are asking about downsides they're asking about fractures of the crest or continued bruising forever or is it going to hurt mm -hmm. forever man there is out of twenty thousand draws are there people that have a little bit of tenderness around the crest because of the synovial layer or the periosteum layer or because they're metabolically compromised and their bone density is crummy. Sure, that can happen. Is that really common? No. Yeah. Or I wouldn't be, I would have found a different way to do it already. Mm -hmm. You even right. go as far as to ask the patient, what side do you sleep on? Right. Yes. So, yeah. so that there's no discomfort. So you take every measure and every precaution to make sure that the patient's going to be as comfortable as possible post-operatively. Yeah. Right? If we are doing a one-sided draw, I usually make sure while we're in the room, I'm like, hey, do you sleep on one side more than the other? Because I'm, you know, I don't want to draw from the side that you're, you're, you're on all the time. Cause it can be a few, it would, you know, I've had it a bunch and you can be a little sore, you know, when you roll over on that side for a few days, mm. not usually. So if, certainly it's worth asking if we're doing one side. Yeah. yeah. And I appreciate you answering the question. I know we covered every episode, yeah. but I want all of it in one place. Oh, I do too, because yeah. I know I want to be sending people, oh, you know, we did the best bone marrow discussion. Now, I do think we did the best bone marrow discussion early on um, about why we use cells. And I do think that when, when patients want to hear it directly from another patient, mm. go to the person that's had a bunch of it. Right. Mm. And, and, uh, and I think that the, Laura is probably, I mean, she's best example. probably the, one of the yeah. better examples because she's so injured by the time we get to her. Um, and she just trains like a Spartan that she's overused every joint in her body. So yeah. she doesn't even complain and to put something on her x-ray machine until she's ready. Mm -hmm. Like she doesn't just complain of, Hey, prophylactically, can I get ahead of it? She's like, okay, she, she now it's my right knee. And you look at it and go, oh my God. And she, yeah. So, so I think she's a great source for that. And we did a whole episode with her. So now that we knocked out that the bone marrow draw is not going to be painful, what about other pain? Like what to be expected in the injection sites? Or let's, already go, previous let's go symptoms? through them because I think everyone's different, right? Yeah. So the, the, cause you asked a question about the, the immediate inflammatory response people get and mm -hmm. why is there times where, especially with, and I think it's a very unique subset of patients, cervical epidurals and lumbar epidurals in people that have a lot of radiculopathy or people that were treating for neuropathy, neurologic compromise, chronic limb ischemia. When we're doing the patient that just has no blood flow or, or nerve function in the lower extremities and we're trying to save their, their, their leg because there's a lot of great data on chronic, on CLI, if you do a, a PubMed search or a Google Scholar search or DuckDuckGo or Brave, not Google Bing or Yahoo, you're not gonna find anything on stem cells that's very um, complimentary or scientific. But if you do that and you look up CLI or chronic limb ischemia, hundreds and hundreds of patients published for 20 years showing that it can make a dramatic difference even in the patients that have failed everything else, even including vascular grafts. But what happens is we inject all these cells in someone's lower extremity, or we inject it, we do an epidural, especially cervical, where people just have this chronic kind of inflammatory response. I think inflammation is very, very sticky. And so what happens with most neurologic illnesses, especially in the lumbar spine or, or cervical spine, everything gets adherent, right? So the dura and that nerve, it's not about the size of my disc and how much of a hernia I have. And I'll, it drives me crazy when someone will, and, and doctors do it to patients intentionally, that, well, it says I have a 3.5 millimeter herniation here and a six millimeter herniation here. It's like that the level that has the worst herniation is even the level that's coming. Like your herniation is way worse than at this level, but your pain being in your triceps is at six, seven and your six, seven just doesn't look as bad. You focus on where you hurt, not necessarily the films, but I do think the inflammatory response when everything's adherent 
And every time you twist or turn or sneeze or cough, it's pulling on that scar tissue and builds up more inflammatory load. Just putting steroids and local anesthetic in there can make scar tissue, can, can break it loose for a second, but then it causes it to come right back. When you do it with cellular volume or biologics, you're breaking loose and kind of lubricating that interface to get rid of the inflammatory response, to make it less sticky, to get it healing tissue is pliable and smooth and mobile. That's what healing looks like. Surgical scar looks like stiff and sore and always inflamed. So when you do biologics to break loose all that adherency, it's really common. And we talk about, look, healing is, a, is the tide coming in. That is four to five months for a lot of people. Kind of what you have at month six is what you're going to have from what we did. But the healing process cartilaginally doesn't even really start for the first six, eight weeks. But it's not uncommon, especially in some of those injections, to when you're breaking loose all that scar and inflammation, people get this. It's like a big wave of growth factors coming in. And they're like, oh, my God, I can move. Mike said that his wife, when we did her neck, that night looked at her and, and and he was like, that's the first time you've turned to the right in months, couple, right? Yeah, a couple of years. So, so she was immediately, because you're breaking loose some of that. Now, the big wave of growth factors comes in, but following the wave, you still have to let the tide come in to get better, right? So you see this big wave of relief, but then because your activity level can change a little bit, and because now we want you to start stretching and maintain some mobility and not give into the pain, we want you to do stuff right? Is it uncommon for people to experience a little bit of inflammatory relief and then a little bit of backlog before you start the healing? For sure, right? Because you break everything loose. Now you're doing a little bit more. Now you're stretching out. Now you get some secondary inflammatory responses. So for a few weeks, I was great. And now it feels like I'm kind of getting sore again. Yes, mm -hmm. but it's not that you're going backwards. The cells have not worked at three weeks. You're getting the benefit of the way we do the procedure to break loose all that, and you're getting the benefit of what we used to do that, but you're not getting the benefit of the biologics yet. It takes weeks and months for things to actually heal. So that initial pain response relief you get, great. We're happy about that. Mm -hmm. Is that what we're looking for with the procedure? No. Mm -hmm. So lumbar epidurals, especially, cervical epidurals, especially, even some knees. Mm -hmm. You put all that fluid in there, like, oh my gosh, it felt so good. Now I'm starting to get, like, it feels like I'm going backwards a little bit. Because mm -hmm. cartilage isn't growing yet, yeah. right? Yeah. We lowered the inflammatory load. It's going to come back, but it's not going to come back as bad. Mm -hmm. And we should be able to get you over the hump. Nerve injuries. I, I tell people all the time when we do, especially even in surgery, carpal tunnel, cubital tunnel releases, cervical epidurals, lumbar epidurals. When we take the pressure off a nerve or break loose scar and people get that immediate, oh my God. And then they get some rebound. Oh, now it hurts worse. It won't hurt worse. Give it a minute, right? So especially even with carpal, something as easy as carpal tunnel. It's amazing how many times a patient has carpal tunnel that thinks they have discs in their neck or a bad shoulder. Because the nerve is like a big garden hose with a kink in it. You can't tell where the kink is. Pressure's building up at the faucet. No water's coming out. We have to figure out where the kink is. We have to, nerve studies, MRI, physical exam. Once we figure out where the most likely kink is that's causing you the biggest problem and treat it. The analogy I use in clinic all the time is it's if you step on someone's throat long enough and hard enough, how long your foot was on their throat and how long it takes you to get it off and what the health of that person was matters a lot to what happens when I take the foot off your throat, right? If it's young and healthy and it's only been on there for a minute, we may take it off and everything just be almost get back to normal really quick. If you're not young and healthy and we take that foot off for a while, there's a lot of overreaction. You got to cough and hack to get your breath back. The nerve does that. And you take the pressure off of it and the inflammatory and it's like, <sighs> comes up for a, a breath. Like if you've held someone underwater long enough, they're going to violently get to the surface and work on taking a breath. They don't just get to the surface and Breathe normal, right? And that's the same way that the human body is going to react with, with inflammatory load or scar tissue or surgery is there's a little bit of, I got to get normal again. I got to get my breath back quick that that nerve is doing to just get its health back. And I think that that overreaction with the, especially with, and with neuropathy, it's just, you may be feeling something for the first time in a long time. Yeah. Like the nerve is dead and you start getting a little feeling back. And so, oh my gosh, my, my, my pain's getting worse. 
Yeah, because the nerve's coming back alive. It's been dead. Now you're actually starting to feel stuff, right? Now it will get better as the blood supply normalizes as you get past the inflammatory load. As you get more health back, it will feel better. But the initial phases of numb and dead is feeling something. And what you feel may not be pleasant, mm. but you will get past that. That's right. a great is that, answer. Is that no, I, the, yeah, I appreciate that answer in detail because I think people don't appreciate how long it takes for a nerve to regenerate through the process. The, hey, look, the nerve heals for a year, right? I mean, it, even with carpal tunnel, people are dramatically better pretty quick. Like they may wake up in recovery room that night after a surgical release, maybe the first night they haven't woke up with their hand numb and tingle or their shoulder hurting or their neck in a crick mm -hmm. in, in years. Does that mean the nerve is healed? No. It just means now there's a little bit of room for the swelling and it's not going to wake you up mm -hmm. to make you move it. Right. I use, we, we talk about that all the time, like nighttime pain and moving around when people are like, well, when I sit and sore, I get stiff and sore. But yeah. Because if I give you a hot rock and that's what inflammatory load is when it sets up, right. It's just, it, it, you can't get away from it. If I give you the hot rock and I allow you to do this with it, you can hold it until it cools off. If I make you hold it in one place, if you're asleep, your body's going to wake you up to make you move around a little bit to kind of give that inflammatory load a chance, get new stuff in to move it around to kind of wash out the inflammatory load, right? There's a reason why people have a lot of nighttime pain and discomfort after a big day of activity. Well, it didn't hurt all day when I did it. Yeah, because you're moving around. But once you lay down now, that shoulder, you can't get comfortable because during the day you could kind of move around. You were hurting, but now you're in one place and that hot rock thing is getting you. So you got to move around a little bit. I think that that's really common symptom after yeah. what the people start to notice when we treat them. Mm -hmm. I like that analogy a lot. Um, so we, we've talked about cervical and lumbar. Uh, talk to me about the shoulder, right? The shoulder's a different situation with the fluid and the amount that you're yeah. putting shoulders, in. Shoulders, so, ankles, yeah, so, that you're, yeah, exactly, so, the fluid amount yeah. you're putting in there. Yeah. What does I, that I think, pain yeah, level look I like? Think, because it depends on what we're treating, mm -hmm. right? Agreed. If you have a partial thickness tear, and I... That, that means, so the analogy I use in a shoulder time, is like a rope going through a pulley, right? So there's an inlet, medial arch, and a lateral arch to the shoulder. So if that rope's going through the pulley and has a big snag in it, that's what starts causing some of the pain when you try to get in certain positions. Like, I can't reach here. I can't do this. Like, you have to pull your elbow back to get your hand up. You can't get milk out of the fridge. You can't reach in the back seat because you're getting that snag right underneath your spur. If I'm going to inject that snag, and get your tendon to remodel, right? So like the snag in a sweater, we can shrink that down, but we're not shrinking it down with cells. We're putting cells into a dead tissue mass that can remodel and heal. Your body can remove the snag in the tendon. It'll remodel that tendon. And we published that a lot, but going back to the Achilles, a 12 centimeter mass that became 2.4 centimeters at 32 weeks. That was even part of our hypothesis originally, right? We thought we were repopulating the dead tissue with healthy tissue so that it could live. I did not give the body enough credit for being able to actually remodel it and make it look new. In the tendon, if it already has a big snag that hurts and I'm going to inject volume into it, I'm going to puff it up more, mm -hmm. right? So I'm going to make that little snag in the rope a bigger snag in the rope and I'm going to make it more fulminant. I'm going to accomplish a bigger zone. So you might be pretty sore and stiff moving that mm -hmm. around. Not for very long because those cells are going to start the, the inflammatory process is going to kick in. You're not healed for 16 to 20 weeks. You're better sometimes if, if it's intracapsular scarring, you're better when you wake up because I'm injecting enough volume in the capsule to break loose all those adhesions. And I'm taking someone that can move their arm to here and I'm moving them to here. While you're asleep, I'm going to move all that around. It's called Spencer's Techniques. It's an old doctor that came up with all these moves to do to people to break loose adhesive capsulitis. It works, but it doesn't work very well if you're awake because you can't do it. And so you're going to tear muscle loose fighting back. If you're asleep and we, we look at that adhesive component like the old balloon that's all scarred in, when I inject it, it's like blowing air into the balloon. I'm going to break the scar loose by putting cells in a volume within the capsule to break it loose. And then I'm going to move it around. If that was your problem, it's not uncommon to feel better right away. Mm -hmm. Like people wake up and recover. Oh my gosh, I can't like, it's like a party trick, right? Mm -hmm. If it's 
cuff that's your problem and I'm injecting all that into the lateral row of your cuff, man, wow, it's really sore to get my arm. Yeah, that's right where all that tissue is. Mm -hmm. It'll continue to remodel. It's going to lighten up from the inflammatory perspective pretty quick. Don't stop moving it. Like, when can I do stuff again? Yeah, that's going to be Whatever you yeah. could do before you got here, you can start doing as tolerated by pain and swelling, right? And you also always say my favorite thing is you're never going to be in any more pain than you already yeah. are in. When, when you're having your bad day, <laughs> yeah. that's as yeah. bad as it's going to be after yeah. we do you probably, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not going to make you worse than when you were having a bad day mm -hmm. because it's the same process. Everything swells up and hurts. I'm just putting something in that's not destructive to the tissue when you swell up and hurt. Your cytokine process, your inflammatory mechanism hurts. But the mechanical part of the swelling is the same as when I put cells in there. Mm -hmm. It's just not the inflammatory component. So you're going to be better probably than when you're having a bad day. But it's the same kind of mechanical symptom. But it's not an inflammatory destructive process that your body's generating. It's a healing process that we're getting started. So same kind of mechanical symptom, but better physiologic symptom. Right. So, but when you see, so can I can I ruin the cells by swinging a golf club? Mm. Nope. No. You can't make the cells not work other than with steroids, local anesthetics, or big high, or a lot of anti-inflammatories. The that's another thing. Can when can I take my anti-inflammatories again? If your anti-inflammatory is sixteen Advil a day, I don't think anyone should be taking sixteen Advil a day, like ever, ever. Like if you're taking sixteen Advil a day. You're going to have a hole in your stomach. You're going to you you you're compromising your liver. If you're taking a bunch of Tylenol every day, you're compromising your liver. You're if you're taking a bunch of Naproxen every day, you're hurting your liver and kidneys with Advil and Aleve. Your your ibuprofen, Naproxen, liver and kidney dysfunction, um, Tylenol, liver dysfunction. Like big doses of those are bad. Now, if you have bad rheumatoid, or if you're really inflamed everywhere, and we have it's going to take a while to get ahead of it is a little meloxicam or Mobic, Mobic brand name, meloxicam generic, it's pennies a month, and, and the max dose is 15 milligrams a day. When you take a little meloxicam, can that hurt the cells? Probably not. We don't have any good literature to show it does. Meloxicam and Celebrex are far enough down away from the cytokine cycle, or upstream really, that it prevents the deactivation of where we're trying to get the cells to work. But the cytokine cycle is interrupted exactly where we're trying to interrupt it with the cells if you take a lot of Advil and Aleve. So Advil and Aleve, bad. Mobic and, and Celebrex, not, not, not as big a deal, right? But in one Mobic, 15 milligram tab, after breakfast, on a full stomach is best. Um, if you don't, because it has a 24-hour half-life, right? And so one Mobic should give you the metabolic equivalent of 16 Advil. You would have to take Advil, you have to take four Advil every six hours to equal what that one Mobic should do for somebody. And, you and we probably shouldn't use brand names sorry. because we'll get canceled over that. But ibuprofen <clears throat> takes, you You would have to take it every six hours to make a difference. Naproxen, you have to take it about every eight hours to make a difference. Meloxicam or Celebrex, Mobic or Celebrex, you have to take it once a day. And you've also encouraged peptides as well oh, for supplemental the health. The anti, what else can I do before I get there? Peptide therapy, right? If we get you on a nighttime agent to elevate your IGF-1, to get your IGF-1 in better position, IPA-CJC, Cimarellin, nighttime administration of those, if there is a way to help your cells do a better job, that's the best hack ever, right? because we're gonna get you out of that inflammatory load and help you kind of on the regenerative side of IGF-1. Um, BPC-157, does, BP does BPC-157 work? Yeah, what does it do? The, 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 it's literally, BPC stands for body protection compound. What, is it, what do you think it does? It was named body protection compound and it's an anti-inflammatory agent, right? So now, we have a lot of weightlifters and UFC guys and all these guys come in and they call it the Wolverine molecule. Yes, it is. <laughs> right? Because it heals everything so fast, right? Everyone, if you're, if you're an ex-guy fan, you know the Wolverine's superpowers it can heal. So they call it the Wolverine molecule. It, does it make you heal faster? Maybe. But how does it do that? Because it gets rid of the inflammatory hurdle that you have to, that your body has. It gets rid of the speed bump to your healing.
the inflammatory load creates a speed bump impediment to you going forward, right? So if you got to drive through the wall, BPC lowers the wall, right? We're going to make it easier for your body to get through the inflammatory response. So I think BPC 157, and is there an advantage to inject, like if it's my shoulder, is there a great advantage to inject it right around the shoulder or just sub Q? Ish, right, is the answer. So when people say, if I inject it right around my shoulder, it makes a big difference. Great, inject it right around your shoulder. If people say, man, if I just, it hurt everywhere, can it, is it just a sub Q administration of BPC work? Yes. Do I take BPC twice a day? Yes. Where do I inject it? I inject it in the morning around my shoulder. I inject it at night in my flanks because of neck and back. Do I do it every day? Nope, I take Sundays off. Is it the only compound I inject in the morning? Yeah, I think so. Other than GHK, on days where if we're going to do a collagen, like when we do my hair, I think GHKCU, from a collagen perspective, we're taking in the morning. I think Kispeptin, Melanotan 2, PT141, those can be morning peptides because you want to avoid a bunch at night when you should be taking your Ipamorelin CJC. So Ipa CJC1295. Do I think that peptide therapy prior to cell therapy can make a huge difference for people? Yes. Do I think there's a ton of people out there that we treat with just peptide therapy? Yeah. Because do I, and, and the FDA ban it. Yes. Did they ban it because it wasn't safe? No. Right. They banned it because of the potential for contamination in bulk source compounds because it's a, it's a, it's just a lash out against compounding pharmacies. Yeah. But does it, 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 are we starting to get the calls yet on, on people worrying if the peptides are unsafe because now the FDA ban is hit? They're, no, we really haven't, no, right? We, more we've, than, more we've, than scared that, yeah, that you're not going to have access to it. Yeah, yeah, not, other, yeah oh, they can like, take it away from me is yeah. more the question than it doesn't hurt me. Yeah. Well, part of that is the education that we provide, right? Which is upfront, look, this is something that can't be patented because it occurs naturally in the body. We wouldn't need as much BPC-157 if our nutritional supplementation contained it. You know, back in the day with meat products and other things. All of the meat, peptides you have. Yeah. Like BPC-157, like where do they make this? Okay, you know where yours is made, right? It's made in your gut. Yes. Because 90% of your immune system is in your gut. This inflammatory component helps to protect your gut. So BP-157 is a gut peptide that we're able to help you get a little bit more systemic use of. Correct. Right? So, I, I, you know, the naturally occurring peptide argument is one of the stupidest things. I think that people are starting to figure out, and I, and I want to make this point before we have to go off, because I don't know how close we are, and I, and I, I know that I'm going to give you some questions. Um, I still want to make sure we hit the rest of that list because I want to make Ashley's job easier and I want to make Peyton's job easier mm -hmm. and I want to make your job easier. Pretty much activity levels is all that we have left to cover. Perfect. Like, first so, two days, what does activity levels look like suggested? Perfect. We'll, I'll make sure you remind me of that in one second. Okay. Because what I want to make sure we talk about, and wait a minute, I may have lost my point. Mm. Supplementation. It's consensus and science, yes. right? So please know. There's, we worked really, really hard on the science and physiology side of what we do. We don't just magically, I hate stem cell discussion or biologics discussion when it's, well, we don't really know what's in it or what these cells do. Yeah, we, we do, right? There's all these surface cell markers. We know what cells do what, we know what, where we want them, we know how they work. There's really good scientific pathophysiologic responses that we're documenting and using to augment the way your body would want to work, mm -hmm. right? I think that people are starting to figure out with the narrative that's been pushed on the world, that science has never been about consensus. Well, my other doctors don't talk about that. That don't mean they're not, that don't mean they're right, right? Consensus is not scientific. The dissenting voice is the most important voice in the room always. When everyone else is just following along, they've muted their importance by agreeing with the narrative. The narrative is being driven by forces greater than you usually. The thought that eventually facts become the consensus is not true. The dissenting opinion may eventually become the consensus. But it doesn't happen very easily. And it certainly doesn't happen very quickly. Am I afraid, is our clinic afraid, of being the voice alone in the woods? 
No, because we're not. We stand with some of the greatest scientific minds in history. Now, have they all been deplatformed and, and, and had all kinds of crap thrown at them and some of the best and brightest minds in the world been questioned their authority on a subject? Sure. Peter McCullough, Robert Malone, Gary DeBrecca, all people that I would love to even think I could measure up to in any sense, because I'm just a clinician. You know, we, we laugh all the time. I always just, I just call myself small town country doctor trying to eke out a living, right? Like for a long time, we actually started a, a company called STCD, right? Just small town country doctor. But I'm just the clinical side of delivery. There's a lot of great scientists out there that I love, respect, I follow. Andrew Huberman, um, Gary DeBrecca, uh, Peter McCullough, Robert Malone. The, these are guys who, and there's a lot, and I feel bad about not going through all the names, but if all the books out there, if you go to Rumble or, or Substack, Substack, or if you look at anyone that's been deplatformed, there's a reason, right? And it wasn't because they were wrong or because they were dangerous. Misinformation, unfortunately, as it turns out, was just the truth. Right. So if someone wasn't afraid to not stand in the narrative, as it turns out, they were right. Yeah. I am not afraid of that. But what people have to get away from is just thinking because everyone said this, that that was right. And I think that now if we can realize that Francis Bacon, when they established scientific method, wasn't afraid of being the dissenting voice like science is not about consensus. Politics is about consensus. If everyone else says something's right, doesn't mean it's right. So. I want to like. I don't want to waste an episode without making sure I make people feel enabled in questioning everything that someone is saying. Like it's fine. Question, question the narrative. It's appreciated. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Like that's why we're having. That's why Hannah has to repost episodes four times. No, I, I think at the <laughs> end of the day, honestly, Doctor McKenna, to address the issue at hand, this is an episode about patient questions it is important for patients to understand where you're coming from yeah because and they I ask all the time well, why reset. isn't this doing there why is they do this why didn't insurance do this what because it's not their narrative right like structure and function and healing in the human body is not part of healthcare. we're it's illness care western medicine focuses on illnesses and diseases what we're trying to do is focus on how do i make you your healthiest you because you can fight all diseases if i just enable your body to be able to do it that's what most of the cellular functions about you can't heal that injury on your own your body tried we're going to try to help you heal it by doing it what your body would have wanted to do which is get these cells where they go yeah and hannah i appreciate your grace as always in yeah terms thank of you the for setting back and let me spew that like <laughs> hannah has to tolerate my rants because in her mind she's like activity we need to get back to activity after again we're, we're back to it it is it is important for patients to understand what they're walking into when they enter your clinic right which is someone that is very passionate and tries to shoehorn a lot of information into a very short episode and that's why it's important i think that's why our viewers are, are really starting to catch on to what we're doing so it'd be in, really difficult to be passionate about something that didn't work yeah if you just sat here and I, I would move on already guys let yeah. me just tell you like when people say well how long have you been doing this 20 years yeah if it didn't work would i still be working so hard on doing this no i i would find what worked okay. right i i work really hard to find what works do, do you think that peptides were taught to us in medical school no do you think that we learned anything about the bone marrow in med school other than most people don't have stems and cells in their bone marrow as they get older no this isn't stuff that we we learn in school like you have to work really hard to 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 find out enough about this it's it happens all the time that patients that come into our clinic are better educated and know more about the subject matter than 90 percent of the doctors out there because they've done their homework and they read and if you read the right stuff and look hard enough outside of Google, Bing, and Yahoo, you can find a lot of material. Now, Hannah, the question is about activity, right? Like that, and I, I, I think that you get asked all the time, and I don't mean that, like, I know that I've ran it. Um, and I'm fine with it, by the way. Uh, I was not bothered by it at okay, all. Okay, <laughs> I always feel I always feel like I got off topic. My and, patience has grown impeccable through oh, this show, Dr. McKenna, so, and I... You give are, you the floor I've, whenever I've turned you, you are into, going. I've turned you into Job. Yes, oh, I yes, I have. You know, I always laugh all the time that God can put you through a lot, and it feels like at this point in my life, 
and we laughed at the last episode that kind of God's done me a solid a lot like Mike Hannah Peyton Sheila Ashley Dr. Chris, Dr. Phillips it is amazing right now how blessed I feel professionally that I don't feel like we deserve 90% of that, right? Like, I, I feel like, but for a long time, I will tell you, you know, in, in Job, it's like you can, everything but kill him, right? Like, God's like, you know, he, he's fake, everything but kill him. I, I really felt like it was everything but kill him, except for the fact that I did die at one point, right? So for a few minutes, I, so for a while, it was, gosh, even kill him, just don't let him stay dead, um, <laughs> right? I mean, seriously, right? Like, it, so I felt like Job a little bit, and, 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 you know, everyone, it's, I don't mean to sound narcissistic when you say that, but, but it took a while for me to feel like that, that how hard we were working was ever going to really turn into something. Now, having said that, I think that when people ask the question of a procedure, when can I do something? My answer is always, and very consistent, and we laugh at me and say, you may not like me, but I'm consistent, right? Uh, and we know I'm, I, I understand I'm an acquired taste. Um, whatever you were doing before you got here, you can work your way back to doing pretty quick. Can you hurt the cells with doing stuff? No. More structure and function, the more activity, the better. Well, when can I start stretching out? When it feels like you can stretch out and it not hurt a lot. Do I, do I work through a significant amount of pain? No. Like, stretch into it work your way as tolerated mm -hmm. by pain and swelling mm -hmm. if you have a lot of swelling after a procedure work on getting the swelling down gentle range of motion light exercise you working with some therabands do i ever think it's going to be time for you to go out and just start doing heavy deadlift again after we've done a back procedure i don't think that's best bang for your buck right <laughs> like if i give you new tires on the car and you want to go burn them off and drive 90 down gravel roads, that's up to you. I said I was sorry. Probably not the best use of the new tread on the tire, right? Mm -hmm. So make better decisions with the new tires and you won't need them again. But am I here to help you get back to whatever your desired level of participation is? Yes. Will I keep you from doing that? Does it hurt what we've done? Does it destroy the cells? No. Right? So... I think that it's activity a, a is tolerated by pain. And yes. Do I ever want you doing exactly what you did when you got hurt? What do you think, right? Is it, was it a normal everyday thing or did you fall from a ladder at 90 hanging off the side of the, the deal, putting up Christmas lights? Don't do that again. But can you start raising your arm, working with light resistance? Sure, I want you to do that. You can't hurt the cells by doing that. Well, amazing. I, <laughs> we made it full circle. We made it full circle. I, I love it. That majority of your questions you found and got answers to in this episode. And I'm going to let anybody else say a sign off if they'd like to before I cut us off. Michael, I, I will. Yes, you get the last word. It is it is Dr. Wade McKenna. So we I want to honor that. I do want to say I appreciate you as a practitioner. I appreciate your passion. I know sometimes the way we deliver content is messy. And here's the thing. I love the mess. I love the mess that we create because it's involving passion. If it were rehearsed, if it were simple, we'd just be in an office doing coded orthopedic procedures all day. So well, we definitely, really this definitely isn't rehearsed. Mic drop. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. Right? Yeah, that, that's, I like that's the mess. My like, I'm there. okay. And here's the thing. I'm not afraid to clean up the mess. I want to look everyone in the eye and tell them thank you so much for, please like and subscribe. Like we're, we're, we're working hard to try to get enough content to make our staff's job easier and to make our patient's job easier to send other people to us. Thank you so much for your trust. And we're continually humbled by the ability to take care of you. We'll see you next time, guys.